Welcome to another exciting episode of The Rock Show, and today we have episode 157, and we are talking about Ike and Tina Turner, and uh, Mike has a lot of stuff for us, but um, if you look at the history of Ike Turner, he was a guy that was a magic man on the stage, like he command, like, like yep. you saw him singing, he command the president, he knew what he was doing. Yeah, he wanted to be like a band leader, so the guy was excellent. He was a he real performer. He, oh, he yeah. was he was a real performer. Uh, he understood how to entertain an audience. He knew. Uh, I mean, he played fantastic piano. Uh, he was a great guitar. You know, he was a good guitar player as well. Um, good songwriter. Uh, unfortunately, you know, his whole you know, like some of these other people we've talked about over the years. Uh, he's a controversial guy because his his legacy is totally tarnished by how he treated Tina Turner. Yeah, okay. but that was more about that movie. What love got to do for it? Well, people. you know, that it's a good movie. It, 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 it's a it's a good movie, and it's based on her book that came out in the mid '80s. So the word was already out for about seven or eight years about him. Um, and I think I think the word had been out anyway because. When they did break up, that was kind of big news at the time in the in the mid seventies. Um, you know, he had bad cocaine addiction, uh, big drinker. Um, but you know, these are these are kind of the kind of things that you have to understand that happened in this industry, uh, especially drugs and alcohol. And uh, you just got to separate the legacy to how he was. It's kind of like Gary Glitter, you know, some of these other guys that we've talked about that ended up in jail or this and that or, you know, horrible crimes. Uh, Ike Turner was a monster to Tina, but what we're going to talk about today is the is the music. And it's, to me, it's some of the best, you know, R&B stuff that's ever come out. Um yeah. But, Mike, you know, he had that weird history also with other women because she already knew what she was getting into. Oh, well, she already had that and, and, and not to, and you know, and Tina Turner deserves all the sympathy in the world, I mean, for what she went through. But, you know, and we'll talk about it a little bit, is is she wasn't exactly a saint 
in the beginning either. Okay. Uh, you know, she, when you watch the movie, they take a lot of liberties and they change some things around. Like one yeah, thing that they show is like, she just sees Ike, Ike Turner in concert, falls in love with the music, falls in love with him kind of, or has feelings. And then he starts hitting on her and then they get together. Well, that's not what happened because for about a year before that even happened, she was hanging out with the band and she hooked up with the saxophone player and had a kid. Okay. Now I'm not putting her down. I'm just saying that's, that's something that's not told in the story. So, you know, you have, you have to understand, you know, it's a movie. Okay. A lot of, there's a lot of accurate stuff in that movie. I mean, I loved how they depicted him singing rocket 88, which is the first rock and roll song ever recorded 1951. Yes. Okay, written by him a uh, good four years before Chuck Berry was doing anything. Okay, so it, 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 Ike Turner is one of these guys that if you know music, you have to point a finger at him and say, hey, you know, this guy was a pioneer. Now, not only with, with music, but with, with, uh, he, he was also involved in, in, in finding talent. He worked as talent, a talent scout for different labels. Uh, we mentioned him in other, other shows where he he discovered people and got them signed okay sometimes to you know his label or bigger label other bigger labels but and of course tina i mean she's she's a total i mean that, that voice is amazing okay uh she was always you know a great performer uh he couldn't have he couldn't have been anything without her and she wouldn't have been anything without him Okay, they just have that they have that intertwined history, you know. So to get into the Ike and Tina Turner story, I want to give a little back history on each of them. Um now Ike was born November 5th, 1931, in Clarksdale, Mississippi. So many great blues guys came out of Clarksdale. Uh he had a very sad and unhappy childhood, which I, you know, would think contributed to his behavior in later in life. Um, he witnessed his father beaten by an angry mob of, of I think mostly white people uh, because of an affair his father was having with somebody. Yeah, well, white, well, white woman. With a, with, a, with, a, with a white woman, I believe. Yeah. So the father was beaten half to death, but lived another three years kind of in agony, almost like an invalid you know, paralyzed in a sense or whatever. And uh, Ike was probably about six years old when this happened. And it, it was traumatic to see his father just slowly suffer and die. Um, his mother remarried and his stepfather was a, a, a raging alcoholic and used to beat them. Okay. The mother and, and him. Okay. Um, he also admitted in his in his autobiography that that he was sexually assaulted by several women in Clarksdale at a young age like you know under 10 okay so uh you know one one woman he I think he used to do a little errands for and she used to make him come in and do things whatever okay and uh it, that definitely had to mess his head up so um, you know, through all this difficult stuff that he was going through, um, he developed an interest in music. He started playing piano in his teens. Um, soon he would get gigs with Sonny Boy Williamson II and even Duke Ellington. So at a young age, he was showing a lot of promise in music. Uh, he, he would put like a, a self-made um, prodigy pretty much. Yeah. yeah I mean, uh, not a child prodigy, but like in a sense of, of self-taught and, yeah, you know, hanging out with, right. Playing. He, he could, he could, he couldn't read, he couldn't read music. I think, I think he never no. knew how to do that, but, uh, maybe later in life, I'm not sure, but, he could play. but, but he could play, he played by ear and that's, you know, usually the best, you know? So, he would put a band together eventually called the Kings of Rhythm in the late 1940s. By 1951, he recorded the first rock and roll song, which is Rocket 88. Yep. And uh, that was at the Memphis Recording Service in Memphis. Um, Jackie Brenston 
the band saxophonist sang lead on that song while Turner played piano. Um, Rockin' 88 is, is, you know, if you listen to it, it has a great distortion on the guitar, something yeah. that was never really done before. So a lot of people point to that as that's, you know, really the first rock and roll song. You have this kind of crunchy guitar sound. Uh, the guitarist's name was Willie Kizart. And, uh, you know, he's just one of these guys, I guess, kind of lost to history a little bit. But but he really played that distorted guitar on, on the first rock and roll song. Yeah, he um, played it Oh, yeah. Now, the band, despite the minor success of the song, it did somewhat well. Uh, it created a lot of tensions in the band because uh, <laughs> the guys ended up only getting about $20 each for the song. And it was a, a regional hit. Okay. That's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. So it, all the tensions involving that um, and, and you know, it broke up that original version of the Kings of Rhythm. Uh, Ike would still play for the next few years in various ensembles. Uh, sometimes using different names, and that would go on for the next couple of years. Now, in 1954, he would visit his sister, Lee Ethel Knight, who lived in St. Louis, Missouri. Uh, soon after, he would put the Kings of Rhythm back together uh, with different with different lineup. Um, St. St. Louis at the time and East St. Louis, which was just over the line into Illinois, um, were centers in the in the country for black r&b music there were a lot of clubs there was a lot of places to play a lot of venues and uh, a large audience that loved it um biracial okay i mean there was there yep. was there was you know definitely white people in the area and, and it was just very popular and uh it was kind of like the center of that kind of you know chicago was always a blues place st louis was kind of like more of a what you would call like early rock and roll. Okay. Very, very early rock and roll before it even had a name. So, uh, Ned Love who owned, uh, he had a club called Ned Love's club. Okay. In yeah. East Louis, uh, he convinced Turner to relocate to that area with the band. Uh, at the time he, the Kings of rhythm that he put together, the new version of it was still based in Clarksdale, which was kind of a, a hall. You know, kind of a hike from St. Louis. Um, it's in Mississippi, so right. It's in Mississippi, so you know, it, it was it was definitely a place to relocate, and and Ned Love convinced him to do it. Uh, so Turner and the band and by you know 19- that we're making more than twenty dollars. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> you'd make a little more than twenty dollars. Okay, um, now by nineteen fifty six, uh, Ike Turner and the band were one of the most popular live attractions in that area of uh, St. Louis and, and nearby East St. Louis. Now, prior to relocating, Turner worked as a talent scout for Sun Records. Okay, we talked about Sun. Uh, yeah. Modern Records and also RPM Records, which were two other popular labels. Around this time, Anna Mae Bullock had moved to St. Louis from Brownsville, Tennessee. And uh, in particular, she lived in an area in Tennessee called Nutbush. Okay, it's got a very rural area, and uh, that's Tina Turner. Okay, yeah. anime Bullock. Um, so a little history on her. Uh, she was born November 26, 1939, in Brownsville, Tennessee. Her family was sharecroppers, and her father was paid as an overseer for the sharecroppers, the cotton pickers, basically. Yeah, now during World War II. Anna Mae Bullock had two older sisters of which she became separated from, okay, while her parents worked in a munitions facility, a defense department building in Tennessee, okay? Uh, They split the family up. Anna Mae went to live with her very strict Baptist grandparents. Um, After the war, she was reunited with her family who would relocate everybody to Knoxville, Tennessee. When Anna Mae was 11, um, her mother would run away unannounced from the family. She would take off because her husband was very abusive, beat them. Uh, I think he was alcoholic as well. Um, She ended up, the mom, in St. Louis in 1950. Um, And in time, Anna Mae 
would would follow her there. Okay, uh, which is depicted somewhat in the film. What's love got mm -hmm. to do? With it, see how they all got back together. Now she began attending a predominantly black nightclub when she got there, called the Manhattan Club. Okay, uh, it was here she saw the Kings of Rhythm for the first time. Yep. And uh, in a short time, she you know she fell in love with the band. Uh, she got to know the band. And she began dating the saxophone player, Raymond Hill, with whom she had her first child with. Um, his name, the, the kid's name was Raymond Craig Hill. Later, when she was with Ike and would marry him, the kid's name would be changed to Craig Raymond Turner. Um, he was born in 1958. All right. In 1957... Bullock, who had tried to convince Turner for a time to let her perform on stage with him, was given a microphone from the band's drummer, Eugene, one night in the audience. Uh, Eugene Washington was his name, and he was the boyfriend of anime Bullock's sister. who uh, Her name was a Aileen, and she was the bartender at the Manhattan Club. Okay. Yep. So she gets the mic, and um, Ike, Tina Tur Ike, Ike Turner was, was playing B.B. King's You Know I Love You on the organ when Anna Bullock chimed in. Okay, she just started singing. And he was totally blown away by her voice. Okay, she had this strong voice, and it was coming out of such a little skinny little girl. Okay, to, you know, she, she was uh, maybe 18 at the time. Okay. Wow. And uh, very, very, you know, small frame, you know, and, and he couldn't believe the power of her voice. Oh, she had lungs, man. She, oh, yeah. she could sing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, he asked her if she knew more songs. And by the end of the night, she had basically joined the band. Wow. Okay. The Kings of Rhythm. So still in high school, okay, uh, Bullock would perform with the band on weekends at the local clubs. Uh, she was one of several vocalists that would be involved with the band at the time. Most of them were male. Okay. They didn't have too many other female singers. Um, by 1958, uh, Bullock sang on her first record, uh, the Ike Turner written tune called box top. Uh, she used the name little Ann on that. Now the single was released on the St. Louis label Toontown records and Bullock later moved into Turner's home in East St. Louis, okay, where she was trained by him on vocal control and performing, okay. Uh, in the beginning, it was a strictly platonic okay. relationship, yep. you know, uh, nothing going on. I mean, she did have a kid with the other guy in the band, um, but eventually it would turn romantic. And she would become pregnant by Ike in 1960. Now, in March of 1960, Ike scheduled his band to record a song with singer-blues guy Art Lasseter. Uh, the song was called A Fool in Love. And Lasseter didn't show up for the recording. Okay? His backup singers showed up. All right? But 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 not... And they were called the Artettes. Okay? Um, but... Uh, the art, the art, the artettes were Robbie Montgomery, Francis Hodges, and Sandra Harding. All right, um, they, I think, uh, I believe, uh, not sure, but I believe one or two of them was in the original Ikeettes as well. Like eventually, okay, when he when he got his backup singers. Uh, now during a gig at the Manhattan Club in East St. Louis, Ike played the record. Okay. Um, and what had happened was because Lassiter didn't show up, Anna May sang. Yep. Okay. And it was really just going to be a demo. They weren't going to put it out, but he pressed it on a couple of copies, you know, acetates and played it at the club and it took off. And uh, there the, was a DJ there named uh, Dave Dixon from a station called KATZ. Uh, he, Loved it. He was in the club that night. He loved the song, and he told Ike to send it to a guy named Juggy Murray, who was the yep. president of Sue Records in New York. Okay, now Murray got a copy.
from Ike right away. He mailed it to him and was blown away by Tina's vocals. Okay. So he bought the right to the song from Ike. Okay. He also offered Ike a $20,000 advance, convincing him to keep Bullock's vocal. All right. Don't change anything. Keep her on that song because it was just a demo. Okay. And he convinced uh, Ike to, to, to stay with Tina, who wasn't Tina yet. She was about to be. Okay. And uh, make her the star of the show. So this prompted Ike to rename her Tina Turner. Yep. And family for the rest of her life, no one called, no, no one close to her called her Tina. And everybody still called her Anna May, a family and all that. Yeah. Uh, still to this day. But um, what he did, very interestingly, is he trademarked the name Tina Turner. And very smart. Very smart man. And, and the, the reason he did it was if she was to ever leave, he could use another woman in her place and call her Tina. Yep. Okay. So, you know. Little business skills there coming from Mike, right? Who the hell would think of something like that? You know, you have to be a, a you know a paranoid person, basically. Or, or diabolical. <laughs> diabolical, yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, but I mean, that's the business, okay? And he was thinking ahead, and I don't think there's anything wrong with that. But um, he chose the name Tina because it rhymed with Sheena. And Sheena was Sheena of the Jungle was his favorite cartoon, and uh, at first they were gonna go by the name Ike Turner and Tina, but Murray Juggy Murray suggested that Ike and Tina Turner sounded better. Uh, Tina had reservations even at that time of continuing her relationship with Ike. She didn't know if she wanted to really be with him. Okay, they weren't married yet; they had a kid. Okay. But he had a, a reputation for being, you know, he already had shown he was very controlling. And uh, he once beat her in the head with a wooden shoe stretcher. <laughs> okay. Not a, not a good sign. Not a good sign. Not a good sign. That's like only a, only a sign of things to come. Okay. I had, you know, when I did my research and I came across that, I had to, I had to think about it. Like, you know, I've seen shoe stretchers and 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 oh they that's like a block of wood okay like <laughs> you know like where it goes in that's hard man get hit with that yeah. name. now a fool in love was released and it became an instant hit uh starting in july of 1960 uh it got to number two on billboards r&b charts by august by mid-august um ike would then form the ike and tina turner review that was the band and uh, it included the Kings of Rhythm male vocalist Jimmy Thomas and a new group of female yep. vocalists called the Ikeettes. Um, as the single rose up the pop charts, it was doing well there too, they went from playing clubs to now playing theaters like the Apollo. That's huge. Yeah, that's very huge. So on October 3rd of 1960, they made their debut on American Bandstand. Uh, when Tina was actually eight months pregnant, okay, and if you if you watch it, they hit it very well. You couldn't yeah. tell, okay. Uh, a Fool in Love peaked at number twenty-seven <laughs> on Billboard's Hot 100, eventually selling a million copies overall. Uh, on October twenty-seventh, Tina gave birth to their son, Ronald Rennell Turner. The success of that single was followed by another hit called I Idolize You and the release of their debut album, The Soul of Ike and Tina Turner. And that came out in February of 1961. That same month, before a gig at the Howard Theater in Washington, D.C., uh, Tina decided to bleach her hair, okay? And there was some mistake in the process, and it caused all her hair to fall out. All right? <laughs> I've, heard it, I've heard of that happening. Yeah. Now, to cover up the uh, the incident, I bought Tina a wig, and uh, that wig would become part of her stage appearance. It was like a long black wig, okay, and that would be part of her stage show for a long time. Um, 
Later that year, the band recorded It's Gonna Work Out Fine. Uh, Juggy Murray is credited as the sole producer of that song, but the R&B duo of Mickey and Sylvia, okay, who sang uh, Love is Strange, also contributed to the song. Um, it became their second million seller and later earned their first Grammy nomination for Best Rock and Roll, uh, rock and roll Song. Now, the Ike and Tina Turner Review toured a, uh, a very grueling series of dates, uh, mostly one-nighters, on what was called the Chitlin Circuit. We've talked yep, about here we go, yep. Chitlin Circuit again in the Deep South, okay? They also broke a, a lot of racial uh, barriers by playing in the South because some of these were very, you know, for the first time, very integrated audiences. Yep. Uh, and they were going crazy. Everybody was liking them. Uh, Follow-up songs include the R&B hits Paul Fool and Tra-La-La-La. Uh, thanks to the addition of singers Stacey Johnson and Vernon Guy, Tina and the Ikeettes, who at this point composed of Robbie Montgomery, Vanetta Fields, and Jesse Smith, began incorporating dance routines into their set. Okay, uh, They were trying to build a reputation as a all-around great R&B act kind of in the style of what James Brown was doing, okay? A yeah. whole a whole big show, okay? Yep. And uh, in 62, Ike and Tina got married down in Tijuana, Mexico. Uh, at that point, they would fully relocate to Los Angeles. In November of 62, Ike and Tina filed a $330,000 lawsuit with Placid Music Corporation against Sue Records. Now, also Saturn Music and Juggy Murray for not paying certain royalties. They, they were getting ripped off. They also yeah. said Sue Records hid over $100,000 in royalty from their knowledge. They didn't even, they found out they were not only just not getting what they knew they owed, there was other stuff coming to them. Okay. Now, their last studio albums on Sue Records were Don't Play Me Cheap. And it's going to work out fine, released in 63. Uh, in 1963, Ike purchased a home in View Park with an advance given by Murray for a renewed contract that they didn't sign. Okay, so it was an advance, and then he never signed. He never signed. Instead, they signed with Kent Records, severing ties with Murray, who was really their manager as well. He kind of was doing a lot for them. Uh, that deal with Kent didn't produce much, so they signed to Loma Records and hired Bob Krasnow as their manager. We've we've heard that name before, Krasnow. Yep. He had Blue Thumb Records. Yep. Now, to make sure that he always had a record out while on tour, Ike formed various labels. Okay, and again, this is his business sense here kicking in. Uh, he had different labels that he could always put things out on. One was called Tina. One was called Pran, one was called Innis Records, one was called Sony, but not Sony. Okay. Yeah. He had he had a name Sony before anybody. Uh so, and also one called Sonya Records. He released singles from vocalists within the band and other groups as well. Uh while I constantly recorded the review, they they performed 300 days out of the year to make That's up the yeah, now it was to make up for the lack of, you know, hit records. Uh, in 1964, Ike and Tina had modest R&B hits with You Can't Miss Nothing That You Never Had and A Fool for a Fool. They released their first live album called Ike and Tina Turner Review Live on Kent Records in 1964. It was their first album to chart in the Billboard charts, the Cashboard 100 charts, I, I should say. Cashbox 100 was a another chart that was out there at the time yeah. uh, to number 90 uh their first album to chart on billboard was a different live album called live the ike and tina turner show and that was released in january of 1965 on uh loma's parent label warner brothers it reached number 126 on billboard top lps and number eight on the hot r&b lp charts in february of 65 in 1965, the duo had two top 40 Billboard R&B hits with Tell Her I'm Not Home and Goodbye So Long. Later that year, they re-signed to Sue. 
interestingly. Okay, after so they went back to they went back to the other guy. Yeah. And released a single called Two is a Couple, which peaked at number 15 on Cashbox R and B records, record charts. Uh through nineteen sixty-five, the Ike and Tina Turner Review performed in several teen rock and roll television shows, including Shindig. Uh, Hollywood, a go-go, and of course, American, American Bandstand. Bandstand. Yeah. Now, producer Phil Spector at the time uh, had seen them perform at a club on the Sunset Strip, and invited them to appear in the concert film "The Big TNT Show," which was filmed on November 29, nineteen sixty-five. By the end of the year, the official incarnation of the Ikeettes abruptly left and eventually formed what was called the Mirettes. On their own. Uh, Ike hired a new set of Ikeettes, who was Pat Arnold, who today is known as P.P. Arnold, still performs today. Okay. Gloria Scott and Maxine Smith. They were the three Ikeettes he grabbed up. Now, eager to produce Tina, Phil Spector negotiated a deal with Ike and their manager, Bob Krasnow, uh, who was the head of Loma Records. Um, Spectre offered 20 grand to release them from their contract and for creative control over his sessions with Tina. All right. Uh, they then signed to Phil's label, Phil's Records, on March 7th, 1966. And Tina began recording the Phil Spectre, Ellie Greenwich, Jeff Barry composition, River Deep, Mountain High. Uh, wow. That was at Gold Star Studios in Hollywood. Yeah. Um, you know, and they did also work on an album, okay? And the single, unfortunately, River Deep Mountain High, yeah. failed to failed in America. It did not chart very well. It only got to number 88. But it did great in Europe. Yes, did fantastic in Europe where it got to number three in England. Uh, it also got to number one in Spain. And it was really, yeah, it was really the first time that Europe had really recognized them. Okay, and and they always ended up being a little bit bigger than, like so many bands, you know. Uh, now, due I, to I always find that amazing that they they fail here, then they go to Europe, and it's like it happens to so many bands, and it's interesting because there, there was an album made along with the song. Okay, oh yeah, and yeah, the album was called, uh, um, I believe it's called River River Deep Mountain High. I believe that's the name of it. Um, and he the, he had an album ready to go out but because it didn't sell in the states he only released it in the uk on london records in uh september of 66 all right so you couldn't get the record in america he had um the the uh promotion guy from decca records named tony hall write the liner notes in the album and it included a quote from Spectre where he says, we can only assume that England is more appreciative of talent and exciting music than the U.S. Okay. That was like a little quote from Phil Spectre in there. And following their chart success in the U.K., they toured with the Rolling Stones as an opening act on the 1966 tour of England. Uh, the successful 12-date tour began at the Royal Albert Hall. On September 23rd, yep, and concluded on October 9th at the Gaumont Theater. Now, after the tour, the band stayed in the UK for a while, and they they played some various club gigs. Uh, They were becoming very popular there. When they returned to the U.S., they were unfortunately involved in a serious bus accident in Wichita, Kansas. Wow. And a few band members were hospitalized. So Ike... What he did was he, he never took, never wanted to miss a date. He recruited members from St. Louis to continue the tour with them. Uh, Tina was okay, but some of the musicians were hurt. Now, by 1967, the review started to book bigger and bigger venues in the U.S. They performed a series of exclusive deals during this period to help increase their finances. Uh, as their careers were rising, unfortunately, the personal relationships within the band and particularly between Ike and Tina was deteriorating. Yeah. Tina actually attempted suicide before a gig in 1968. She tried taking some pills and uh, luckily she didn't succeed, but you know, she was very upset with her life 
and despite that, you know, when you watch all those old clips, uh, even in the, the Rolling Stones movie, Gimme Shelter, you see these the great performance, but you just know that she was very miserable inside. No. Yes, she wasn't happy. You know, in 68, Bob Krasnow pound, uh, founded Blue Thumb Records, and uh, Ike gave him enough masters for two albums. So their wow. first album was called Out of Season, and that was released in March of 1969. It peaked at number 43 on the Billboard R&B LP charts. Now, Out of Season produced the cover of Otis Redding's I've Been Loving You Too Long. Their version of that is fantastic. That yeah. got to number 23 on the R&B single charts. And in May of 1969, uh, Ike and the Kings of Rhythm released the album Black Man's Soul on Pompeii Records. Uh, the album earned Ike his first solo Grammy nomination for Best wow. R&B Instrumental Performance at the 12th Annual Grammy Awards. I don't think Tina was on that. I think it was just him. Pretty sure. Yeah, that, that was uh, Kings of Rhythm. Right, uh, no, it was a solo thing. It was a solo thing. Now, in August of 69, A&M Records reissued River Deep Mountain High for the first time in the U.S., uh, the album. Okay, so it, it was already three years old. It had never been released in the States. A&M Records put it out, and it got to number 28 on the R&B charts. Uh, that's the not next, bad. No, that's not bad. It's a good album. It's a very good album. Yeah. Um, the next month, The Hunter was released on Blue Thumb, uh, one of the most – and that's kind of – one of their most blues-oriented albums that they ever made. Uh, guitarist Albert Collins is featured on the title track. Uh, the title track called The Hunter is also an Albert King cover. Um, it reached number 37 in the R&B singles charts, and the album peaked at number 47 on the R&B album charts, and eventually uh, it earned Tina her first solo Grammy nomination, for the best R&B vocal performance female at the 12th annual Grammy Awards. Okay. Wow. So as the 60s ended, Ike and Tina uh, began performing at rock festivals. In November of 69, Ike and Tina upstaged the Rolling Stones, opening for them at Madison Square Garden. Okay. I see that easily happening. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's, it, it, it's, it's shown all over the Gimme Shelter movie. Uh, yeah. Tina does this erotic performance of i've been loving you too long okay and she's you know she's wearing a short dress and she's it's all glittery and and then she's, and she's got the mic in that ass yeah she's got the mic in her hand and she's holding the mic like it's a dick all right it's just you know any guy is gonna just, <laughs> any guy is just gonna stare at that you know um uh and and they they toured with the stones for a couple of shows and really some say they upstaged them that they were actually better um, at that MSG show in November, Janis Joplin actually jumped on stage as well and joined them for the song of Land of a Thousand Dances. Um, at this point, Ike and Tina would also incorporate some Stones music and some Beatles music into yep. this. Okay. They would record, uh, get back and, and let it be. They did honky tonk woman from the Stones. Um, their next, uh, their new label that they were going to be on was called Mint Records, um, and they did a rendition also of "Come Together" by the Beatles. Okay, that was in December of '69. In January of '70, Ike and Tina performed on the Ed Sullivan Show, and their performance was a song called "Bold Soul Sister," and it propelled the single to number 22 on the R&B charts. Um, in March of that year, their single "Come Together," the Beatles song peaked at number 21 on the R&B charts. Now, due to the success of their singles, they were signed to Minute Records' parent label, Liberty Records. And their next single on that would be I Want to Take You Higher, which was a cover of the Sly and Family Stone song. Uh, that was released in May of 1970, and it actually charted higher than the original. Wow. Okay. Uh, Billboard Hot 100 uh both of them made it, but but she got higher than than Sly. Um, their first album on Liberty was called Come Together, and that was released that same month, reaching number 13 on the R&B charts. 
The review's performance fee at this time increased from $1,000 per night to now $5,000 per night. <laughs> That's a nice little race there. Nice, yeah, a little five times race. Okay, following their, this very successful run they were on. In July, they headlined at the Newport Jazz Festival um, in Rhode Island. And uh, they also headlined at the Schaefer Music Festival in Central Park in New York City. Uh, that summer, they were featured in the Isley Brothers concert film, It's Your Thing. And they filmed Milo Foreman's uh, Taking Off. Later that year, they made their first trip to Asia to perform in China, Japan, and the Philippines. Wow, that's and, a hell of a tour. Yeah, yeah. Now, Ike and Tina began performing Creedence Clearwater Revival's Proud Mary uh, during some live shows in 1969. Um, Ike and Tina then released their version on the album Work Together in December 1970. Uh, that's a fantastic version yeah, of that I think it, you know, the, the Creedence version is good, but I think that they just, you know, I just put, think a, I can put a different spin on better, it. Man. Yeah, I, I agree. I agree. You know, and it has to, you know, I mean, Tina had the sex appeal and the voice and the dance routines and everything with that, you know, and the way it starts out slow and gets fast, you uh, know, it's, it's classic. It's classic. You know, um, the, uh, the the single was was released in January of 1971, and uh, it got to number four on the Hot 100, Billboard Hot 100, and then also got to number five on the R&B charts. It sold more than a million copies, becoming the duo's biggest selling single to date, and earned them uh, a Grammy Award for Best R&B Performance by a Group at the 14th Annual Grammy Awards. So that was their f first Grammy. Okay, they've been nominated before that, but wow, yeah. So, working together became their most successful studio album as well, uh, peaking at number twenty-five on the Billboard Top Two Hundred, and it got to number three on the R and B charts. It includes the duo's social conscious track "Working Together," great song, uh, funkier than a mosquito's tweeter. That's a funny song. <laughs> That's a funny song. Yeah. And uh, that was written by, I think I believe that was written by uh, Tina's sister, Aileen Bullock. And two Beatles covers they did. They did Get Back and Let It Be. And I'll tell you this. I like their version of Let It Be better than the Beatles. <laughs> uh, shit on the Beatles right now and say I like that better. They did a lot. You know what? They did a lot of cover, but when they did it, they did it either better or superior to. Well, that's, that's the that's the thing. Um, I, I, I'm never I, I'm never impressed when people do too many covers, but but when they do it in a way and they make it their own, you know, yeah. Tina Turner did that, the Ramones did that, the Cramps did that. Okay, a few other bands that I, I can think of if I really try, but. Uh, most of the times when someone does too many covers, it's just kind of like, don't you write your own shit? But I think I think with Tina Turner, I think there was, I read something years ago that John Lennon was asked about that. And he, he's just like, she does it better than we do. Something on those lines, he said, you know. But um, in January of 71, Ike and Tina embarked on a European tour, which included dates in Cannes, in France. And also the Olympia Theater. Now, their performances, that's in Paris, uh, their performances received rave reviews. Uh, the concert at the Olympia was recorded and released as live in Paris. While in Paris, wow. the Turners received the French Jazz Academy Soul Award. Um, Ike and Tina participated in the concert ce celebrating Ghana's 14th Independence Day on March 6, 1971, Ghana, Africa. Okay, now yeah. the concert was filmed and released as Soul to Soul in theaters. Um, and that was in August of 71 that came out. Now, the following month, the soundtrack. Hey, let me ask you a question. So, these guys right now, they're just popping music, traveling and traveling like 300 on uh, 300 dates a year yeah. now, or they just yeah. no, there's no, there's no stopping. Yeah, okay. crazy. Yeah, yeah. And and I think that, you know, that contributed to the demise of them. Okay. They, they just imploded in a, yeah. you know, I mean, I, even if their relationship was able to be salvaged and it wasn't. 
Okay, but even if you had even if you had that, the band was going to implode just on the way that I drove them. Yeah, it was like holy moly. Yeah, they you, know, you had to. Yeah, you had to. You know, three hundred days a year singing and performing is is very hard. Okay, it's fucking insane, dude. It is. There's no you got no days off. A day here, no day, day there. Off. That's it. Yeah. Now, in May of '71, uh, Ike and Tina were the opening act for Johnny Mathis at uh, Caesar's Palace in Las Vegas, performing for the first time in the main room there. Uh, Caesar's has different rooms. You got the main room, which is a big deal if you make that. Uh, earlier in the year, Liberty Records was absorbed into United Artists Records, and that's where Ike and Tina Turner would, would stay. Okay, Their first release on that label was the live album, What You Hear Is What You Get, uh, recorded during their concert at Carnegie Hall in April of 71. It peaked at number 25 on the Billboard charts and number 7 on the R&B charts. The album was certified gold by 1972. And in July, of, yep, in July of 71, Ike and Tina filmed their performance at the Schaefer Music Festival in Central Park. And it aired as Good Vibrations from Central Park on ABC TV in August of 71. So it was like shown on television. Yeah. That's how big That's they huge. were. Yeah. Now, huge. also in 71, they had a top 40 R&B hit with Ooh Papa Do and I'm Yours, Use Me Any Way You Wanna. Okay. Uh, in March of 72, the Turners opened their recording studio called Bolick Sound to the public. Uh, the facilities had already been in use for Turner's production since 1970. Now, a few months later, they released the album Feels Good. Uh, nine out of the ten tracks were actually written by Tina. Wow. Okay. That's huge. So, yeah. And in August, they performed at Nassau County's first major rock festival, uh, which was called the Hope Rock Fest. And that was at Roosevelt Raceway, okay, to benefit crippled children. Roosevelt Raceway is now called the Roosevelt Field Mall. Okay, it is no longer a racetrack. <laughs> wow. That's where they used to have trotters. I used to go there when I was yeah. a kid. And now in October, they performed It's Going to Work Out Fine on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. Uh, the duo had moderate success with the Tina Penned track Up In Here in 1972 and a cover of Little Richard's Early One Morning in 1973. In August of 73, they released their first uh, hit record, uh, not their first, but their major hit record, Nutbush City Limits, which was written by Tina herself. Uh, it peaked at number 22 on Billboard Hot 100, and it got to number one on the R&B charts. Great song. Uh, the single did even better in the UK and Austria, where it got to number four and number one, respectively. In 1974, the Turners received the Golden European Record Award, and that was the first wow. time it was ever given out to anybody. Uh, and that was for selling more than one million records of Nutbush City Limits in Europe. Uh, their follow-up single was called Sweet Rhode Island Red, and also a song called Sexy Ida, and that did well on the R&B charts in Europe as well. In April of 74, Ike and Tina released the album uh, called The Gospel, according to Ike and Tina Turner. It's a gospel record. Okay. A, a few months later, Tina released her first solo record called Tina Turns the Country On. Uh, both, yes, both received Grammy nominations. Ike also earned a solo nomination for his single called Father Alone. Uh, Tina was nominated for Best R&B Vocal Performance, Female for a Solo Record. She got another nomination. Yeah. In early 75, a uh, guy named Gerhard August, okay, uh, he was the co-founder of Beat Club in Germany. Uh, that was a, uh, a show. Okay, that was uh, like a old gray whistle test type of show in Europe. Um, he was also the former head of A&R at uh, United Artists in Munich. He became wow. Ike, and, Ike and Tina's manager. Uh, also, Tina performed the song Acid Queen in the Who's Tommy movie. Do you remember that? Yeah. That's a great That's a great scene. And that's the, one of the best scenes in that movie. Scene. Yep. Now, to capitalize on her popularity in that movie, 
a solo album by Tina was released called Acid Queen, where she covered the Who song and others. Um, the lead single by uh, the lead single was called Baby Get It On. Uh, that became the duo's last charting single together, peaking at number 31 on the R&B charts. Uh, it was a hit in Europe. Uh, got to uh, number 20 in Belgium, number 9 in the Netherlands. By 76, 1976, um, Ike's cocaine addiction was out of control. Yeah. Uh, it made him... Uh, you know, kind of like a naturally paranoid guy made him abnormally paranoid. All right. And it was so bad that he actually burned a hole through his septum in his nose. Okay. Now, you know, and the pain from that made him do more drugs. Okay. So he was messed up. All right. And in March, 1976, Ike and Tina headlined at the Waldorf Astoria in New York city. Uh, they also signed a deal with CBS TV for nine TV shows revolving around the Ike and Tina Turner review with the possibility of it actually becoming a series. Okay. A regular series. Now Ike was planning for, uh, um, them to leave United artists for a new record company called cream records for a reported annual amount of $150,000 a year. Uh, the contract had a key person clause, meaning they would have to sign it within a certain amount of time, in this case, four days, uh, keeping Tina contractually tied to Ike for five more years. Now, on July 1st, 1976, the Ike and Tina Turner Review flew to Dallas for a gig. While en route to the hotel, Ike and Tina in the car got into a physical altercation. Okay, that's kind of shown pretty well in what's love got to do with it. It's, okay. it's the beginning of the end. Yeah, I mean, Almost. you know what? I watched it the other night just to refresh my memory. And, and yeah, I don't know how accurate the fight scene is, but when Fishburne pops her and she just pops him back, you know, it was like, whoa, <laughs> she clubbed him, right? And they yeah. walk into the lobby of the hotel, they're checking in, all bloodied and beaten up. All right, and everybody's just looking at them, you know. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, but you know, after the arrival of of them in that hotel, she fled to a Ramada Inn across the street. Okay, just to get away from him, uh, she would hide at several friends' uh, houses over the next few days. Um, they missed shows because of this. Now, on July twenty seventh. Tina filed for divorce on the grounds of irreconcilable differences. Years later, in her 1986 autobiography, I, Tina, My Life Story, she alleged that Ike was abusive for the whole marriage, basically. Okay. Um, and Ike claimed in his 1999 autobiography called Taking Back My Name, The Confessions of Ike Turner, that Tina instigated that last fight. So she would have a reason to break up with him before they were scheduled to sign the new contract. I don't know. Okay. You know, probably a little bit of each, you know? Yeah. I remember in the late nineties, uh, I got to see Ike Turner at the village underground. Okay. Yeah. I've never, I've never seen Tina live cause I'm not a big fan of the music she did after this. Not that she doesn't, not that she's not a good performer, but I never really got into like the what's love got to do with it stuff and all that. You know, but uh, uh, Ike was playing the Village Underground over on Third Street, and uh, he hadn't played in years. You know, and he came out, and you could tell he was, you know, an old man kind of. You know, yeah. And, but he could still play. He had a good band with him, and he talked a little bit about things. You know, and he basically implied that. Things were exaggerated, and, you know, he was kind of trying to clear his name. Uh, yeah. You know, people just listened. Nobody really responded either way or the other. But uh, he brought a good show, you know. I mean, the guy wrote Rocket 88. Yeah, the, that's the guy, the guy knew how to perform, man. The guy was yeah. a master of the stage, man. When he was there, he was the command. He knew what he wanted his band to do and stuff. And, um what else can you say? The guy was a, a he was he was a band leader, man. A great band yeah. leader. Yeah, you know, and uh unfortunately his legacy's tarnished with all this. Yeah. And you know, 
I'm not, I'm not, I'm not saying he wasn't a monster because he obviously was, but you know, it's just, it's, you have to kind of separate that when you're talking about music. Now yeah. their divorce, Ike and Tina's divorce was finalized on March 29th, 1978. In that settlement, Tina gave Ike her share of the Bollock sound recording studio, the publishing companies, the real estate, and wow. he kept four cars. Now, Tina retained her songwriting uh, royalties for songs that she had written, but Ike received the publishing royalties for the compositions that they wrote together. Interesting. Okay. Uh, she kept two Jaguars, furs, jewelry, costumes, and stuff that were all hers, uh, and she kept her name. Okay. Yeah, so that. Yeah, that trademark thing was thrown out the window with the yeah. divorce settlement. Okay, he couldn't he couldn't get another Tina Turner, okay, to be Tina Turner, you know, to perform for him, okay, which is probably what he wanted to do at that point, okay, because he wasn't going to quit. All right, nah, you know, can't quit, like, you yeah, know? yeah, yeah. Now, what she did also was uh, she kept the name, but she took responsibility for the debts incurred from the missed shows during that final month. Um, and they also had a, a lien from the IRS for something that she controlled. She took control of that. So United artists responded. Okay. Cause the United Artists was still signed to them responded to this abrupt split by finishing albums from their last recording sessions. Um, over the next few years, I can Tina Turner stuff would come out. Uh, there was an album called Delilah's power in 77 an album yeah. called Airwaves in 78. And in 1980, Ike released the single Party Vibes with a song called Shame, Shame, Shame on the flip side. And that was taken from the album The Edge. And that single got to number 27 on Billboard disco charts. It was like a disco wow. song. Okay. Now, after Tina's rise to superstardom in the 80s, uh, several compilations containing unreleased material would pop up uh, one was called get back that was released in 85 and i'm called gold empire also released in 1985 the rest is history you know where where she went okay she went yeah. to superstardom okay yeah. uh and now she lives in switzerland uh very quietly she retired she married a uh a, 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 i want to say i think he's a lawyer maybe Okay, if I remember yeah, right, yeah, you know, and a Swiss, a Swiss guy, white guy. Um, God bless her, man. She's happy. She's in her early eighties now, and and you know, She's living like the life. Also, yes, yes, yes. Uh, that's depicted well in the in the film too. Um, she did become a Buddhist in the seventies, and I think she still practices that. You want to hear something funny? Well, I turn to die. Yeah. The headline in the in the the headline in the Portuguese, I beat Tina to death. I remember that. Yes, <laughs> yes. I beat Tina to yeah. I know. That was I the know. headline. What a what a fucking headline! Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that's pretty much that. That was pretty much man. And he passed away, and that's it man the rest is history but what a life they live man the music that they created uh because i think that i think they, they they were good to uh for them to be we tried to start off their career and then yeah. it just became toxic you know well he was toxic you know very difficult yeah. <laughs> even never mind the relationship he was just a but, difficult but you know guy to work like, with it, take, it takes two people to be toxic I realize that. I realize that. And I'm, 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 unfortunately, I, I know that a little bit from experience. But but yeah. the, the thing is, is that he was just a difficult guy to work with. Yes. Okay. The, the band members that, had yeah. problems. The band members had problems with him. So, you know, it, it, oh, and a lot of these, you know, you look at his, his childhood and not to make excuses, but, you know, it, it was fucked up. Okay. Yeah. So that, he even admitted in, in, in his book, he admitted like, you know, because of being sexually abused, he viewed sex as power. Wow. Okay, so he, he used yeah. sex as a power over a woman instead of 
a lovemaking thing. Okay. Yeah. So yeah. But I mean, the music stands the test of time. I've been listening to them a lot yeah. uh, in preparation for this show. And uh, the Working Together album, man, it's a beautiful record. It really is. Yeah. Uh, her voice is great. Um, you know, I just, uh, I always liked them. I always thought that they were a little, little lost. In, I don't want to say lost to history because they're not, but like, they're not always, they're not always upfront in people's consciousness about what was going on in the 60s. And she was yeah. a, huge, a huge part of it. Really a huge part of it. Yeah. And they both got indicted into the, um, both went into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Yes. yes. What yeah, year was that? Then, Do you know what year that was? Uh, I can tell you right now. Was it in the 80s or the 90s? It was in uh, 91. So, yeah. I can see you know, inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 91. And that's St. Louis Classic Rock Hall of Fame. In yes. 2015. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's you can't emphasize enough how important St. Louis was in those early days. Okay, uh, Chuck Berry, you know, I believe he got a start in St. Louis, or he played a lot in St. Louis in the beginning. Uh, you know, and but this was this was like three, four years even before him. Okay, that that Ike Tina Ike, Ike was there. You know, not Tina, yeah. but Ike. You want to hear something? Tina got Tina also got her name on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. Yeah, and she was also inducted into the Soul Music Hall of Fame and the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame of solo artists. Yeah, so she was in a lot of Hall of Fames, and wow! And her legs were insured by Lloyd's of London. Lloyd's of London, you know, Lloyd's of London used to insure every wrestler, so. Yeah, if they got they would still get that paycheck. It's insane. The laws of London. That's pretty <laughs> funny that you brought that up. Yeah, yeah. All right, man. So if anybody Great wants show. to check us out on uh, on social media, you can find me uh, on Instagram, Rocker Mike two one two. You can find me again on Twitter. My account has been reactivated. Rocker Mike two one two also on Twitter. Nice. Uh, I'm on I'm on Getter. On as Rocker Mike, I'm on Clout Hub and MeWe as Rocker Mike, uh, Truth Social as Rocker Mike. I'm on Facebook as Rocko Mike because they still suck and won't let me be Rocker Mike. I'm Rocko Mike, <laughs> and then and then uh, also on Facebook you got the Rock Show Podcast group page. So please yeah. check all that out. Follow, subscribe, hit like, all the good stuff. Uh, check out the YouTube channel here. You're watching this on. Hit subscribe. Hit like, please. Uh, and I think by the time this shows up, we might have a Rumble channel as well. So check us out over there. Yep. Um, we're definitely going to be going out. Lots of few shows are going to be going Rumble soon. Um, the conspiracy show, like I told you, is going to be moving from. Uh, it won't longer be on YouTube. Be on Rumble. Um, the Rock Show will still be on YouTube and probably some episode on Rumble too. And the so, Rocker Mike, the Rocker Mike and Rob presents interview shows. We'll put on YouTube as well, of course. Yeah, those will definitely be on YouTube. Good day, you know. It's just us interviewing people. And uh, Mike, another great job. And uh, people, if you want to follow me, uh, just look getting lumped up. And I'm all over the place in social media. You can find me anywhere in social media. Uh, just uh, type in getting lumped up, and I'm on Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, and anywhere you can find. Um, Something with um, drinking, I'm on there. <laughs> <laughs> All right, and stay tuned for another great rock show episode next. That's what one fifty eight, yeah. and that's going to be the uh, the making of Alice Cooper's Billion Dollar Babies album. That's one of my all time. Yeah, wow, that's going to be huge. That's going to yes. be huge. So people have a good uh, day, and we see you in two weeks, baby. Two weeks. Remember, don't get drunk. Get lumped up. we see you next week. Take care, people. The only podcast you will hear That will be music to your ears about bands you love or may not know, and it's only here on The Rock Show. 
Let's get lumped up on the rock show.